Welcome to PreachingChrist.org, the preaching ministry of Father Patrick Malone, Vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church in Milwaukee. If you have any questions about the Bible or the Christian life, contact us at Patrick at PreachingChrist.org. This morning, we are going to start a little journey. And the journey is through one of the key books of the New Testament. Uh, We studied this book, I think when I first came to Wisconsin, at our uh, Wednesday morning Bible study. And so this will be a refresher for some people, but for most of us, this will will be brand new material. And so I will do my best to have an insert of the chapter that we'll be dealing with that week. We do have Bibles on our cart out there. And I would begin to encourage you to bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I will make sure that you have one. One of the key elements of the foundation of Anglicanism is that the Bible is to be available in the language of the people. Everyone should have a Bible. Everyone should be reading their Bible. Because in the Bible are the words of life. And the Bible should be accessible and read by every Christian. I want to begin this morning with a little bit of history about the town of Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. Paul was in prison in Rome. He was was imprisoned a number of times, but this is near the end of his life. He's in Rome because he's been accused of uh, basically blasphemy against the state. And causing havoc. Because wherever Paul went, he had one mission. And that was to declare the glories of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he would go into a town like Ephesus. He would first go to the synagogue. And he would preach to the Jews there in town. The gospel... Christianity is built upon the foundation of Judaism. If there is no Judaism, there is no gospel. If there is no Judaism, there is no Christianity. And so to understand Christianity, we have to understand Judaism. We have to understand how God interacted with the Jews. And so Paul would first go to the Jews, and then once he felt people were rejecting him, He would then move to the city square where the philosophers and the people uh, of ideas would meet. And this is exactly what Paul did. He went to the synagogues in uh, Ephesus. And Ephesus, if you can imagine uh, Turkey, it's like a rectangle. I'm doing this from your perspective. And uh, 
Here is the Mediterranean Sea. Here is Turkey. And here is Asia. Ephesus is right about here on the south port of Turkey. Paul grew up over here in a city called Tarsus. Both are in what we now consider Turkey. And so I'm sure Paul knew people in Ephesus. I'm sure Paul had been there several times. He was a Roman citizen, which was unique for a Jewish person. He had free Rome, free range over the entire Roman Empire. And his family must have done something extraordinary for them to give citizenship to a Jew. Unlike America, citizenship was earned uh, in uh, the Roman Empire. In the United States, uh, you have to be blessed with being born here to be a citizen. Ephesus is unlike any type of culture that you and I could imagine. From our perspective, from really any perspective of the Western culture, it was decadent. Capital D, decadent. And in the, in the center of Ephesus, it is uh, near uh, another town. Ephesus isn't a town anymore. Was a temple. And it is a classical-looking temple. Uh, Surrounding the temple and holding up the roof of the temple are two rows of columns going all the way around this rectangular building. And they were what we call Ionian columns. Up on top would be a ram's horn-looking thing at the top of each column. And inside the temple would be a gathering place where, uh, if you had the money, you could uh, perhaps go there to worship. And by worship, I mean take your money, uh, give it to the treasurer, and then you too could purchase a temple prostitute. So this was decadent. Unlike worship of any type of religion today, uh, sex with a temple prostitute was part of the regular worship in this temple. And the temple was the temple originally of the female deity Artemis. When Rome took over, they changed her name to Diana. And what Rome found was each culture that they conquered had very similar gods and goddesses to them. And so to standardize things and to streamline things, they changed everyone, every god and goddess's name to their god and goddess. So it used to be the Temple of Artemis, but after it was burned down and destroyed a couple times, Rome rebuilt it and named it the Temple of Diana. And it was a classical-looking temple. And when you walk in, there was a large court, courtyard where you could participate in in, uh, temple prostitution. And then, as you walked into the room, there was an elevated platform. And on that elevated platform was about a six to eight foot tall idol to Diana. And Diana, if you look up uh, Artemis or Diana on Wikipedia or in any uh, website on the internet, 
uh, she was about, you know, the statue was six to eight foot tall. And around her chest and belly were all these bulbous looking objects. And for many uh, decades and for a long time, uh, archaeologists thought that they were multiple breasts. But no, they weren't ultimate, ulti- uh, multiple breasts. They were multiple bull's testicles. So this is a very odd religion. And that statue was to depict and to promote the virility, the power, the life-giving force of Diana. Diana was a fertility goddess, and she was also the goddess of war. And so imagine being a Jew or a Christian living in this culture, where the constant pressure isn't to root for the Green Bay Packers or the Chicago Bears or the Milwaukee Bucks. The constant pressure was that you go on a regular basis and pay your tithe to the temple and bow and give fealty to Diana. This was constant pressure to be part of the community. And the Christians in this community said no. But as we know, some people succumb to pressure more than others. And Paul was very concerned about this tiny little group of Christians in Ephesus. Frankly, uh, biblical uh, historians and archaeologists would say that the core group of these Christians in Ephesus was probably 20 to 40 people. And yet we have a letter that has lived through the ages of the inspired text that Paul wrote to this tiny little group. And the pressure that they would get from family members, if you don't go and pay fealty and homage to Diana, we have no part of you. You couldn't participate in economic uh, activity. You couldn't have a stall at the farmer's market to sell your goods. People wouldn't trade with you if you didn't go down and pay homage to Diana. And paying homage merely isn't putting a a coin in the bucket. It's participating in the decadent and evil uh, life of the temple. We have no idea how hard it was to be a Christian in 60 AD. And so Paul writes this letter to a community, a small community, who's being told all the time, you're so small, you must not be be correct. The dominant culture must be correct because the gods are blessing us with large numbers. This was a very powerful pagan culture that these Christians lived in. They needed encouragement. And they needed to be reminded on a regular basis of who they were, who God was, who Jesus Christ was, what it meant to be a Christian, 
what it meant to live like a woman, what it meant to live like a man, what it meant to be a child following Jesus, what it meant to have servants and to be a master. And so Paul begins this letter with these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So right away, he is promoting the dominance and the power and the legitimacy of the triune God of Scripture. And that he's not here because he's come up with a new religion. He is there because God, the God of creation, the God of redemption, has sent him there and has now leading him to write this letter to this tiny, persecuted group of believers. He is a sent one, a selected one, a leader in this new movement, not by his own will, but by the will of God. And it is so important, brothers and sisters, to understand where you are in the will of God and to stand there and to not be moved and to not allow the pressures of the culture to take you over and to say, no, I am here by the will of God. I had an hour-long conversation with our bishop on Friday. And both he and I agree completely that me, your rector, Patrick Malone, is here and will continue to be here by the will of God. I hope you hear that. And I hope you believe that. Now, that means a a number of things, and I'm not here to preach about me, but I think today we need the encouraging word. The whole Patrick Malone, the annoying Patrick Malone, the failure Patrick Malone, the uh, forgetful Patrick Malone, but also the Patrick Malone that will stand here in the best of his ability to preach to you the word of God. And the Patrick Malone, with the best of his ability, by the grace of Christ, will serve you, the body and blood of Christ. It is important for all of us to know and to stand in the firm will of God. And Paul says, I am a sent one to you Ephesians. Not to promote myself, Not to create a small business and to be an entrepreneur so that I can franchise this out to different communities in Asia Minor. But I'm here to you, Ephesians, because Christ has sent me and I am doing this by the will of God. Notice who he writes to. And this is fundamental. Because we have a lot of church traditions around that have been teaching things that are not according to the word of God. He writes this letter to who? Notice the second line, to the saints. Now, who are these people, the saints? They don't live in New Orleans. 
They aren't the cream of the Christian crop, these people that have reached a certain level of piety, the super-Christians. The saints are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and have been cleansed and made holy by him. Basically, if he wrote a letter to the Christians in Brookfield, Wisconsin, to the saints, he would be talking to you. There are no super-Christians. Every Christian is a fallen sinner who's been saved by grace. The only superhero is the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us holy. He makes us saints. He sets us apart. He creates new life in us. He comforts us. He seals us. He makes us saints. You are a saint. And you don't have to reach some level of piety because that has been reached already by Christ for you. You don't have to produce miracles. You don't have to answer prayers once you get into heaven. All of that has been made up by the Church of Rome, and it has no biblical foundation. A saint is someone who is trusting in Jesus Christ, who has been redeemed by his blood, and who has been set apart and made holy by him. You, like these weak, frail Christians who sometimes weren't quite sure if this Christian thing was true, were saints. And they were called the holy ones, the faithful in Christ. Notice these two words in the next line, verse 2. He says, grace and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. These are two of the greatest words that a Christian or a person looking for God can hear. What is grace? Well, we we can call it the simple definition of God's unmerited favor. It's that, but it's much more than that. It's not that a person gets God's favor because they haven't earned it. It's that the Christian actually, without Christ, can't even come close to deserving it and actually deserves hell. It's God's demerited favor. Not his unmerited favor, but his demerited favor. We don't deserve anything close to God's grace. We don't deserve anything near God's grace. But when God looks down at you, he loves you. He favors you. He wants to pour his blessings on you. He has made eternal extravagant promises to you. And as we go through chapter 1, we are going to see the glorious promises that we have through Christ Not because we merit them. Because if we can earn God's favor, it's no longer grace. But God's favor 
comes to us. It's the way I love Naomi. She can't really do anything significant to add any benefit materially to my life. I love her because she's mine. I love her because she's part of my family. And I have decided I'm going to pour my love materially and emotionally and spiritually on her. It's a way that a, a good parent loves their child. And God has that gracious love for you because you're you and because he is who he is. In the Old Testament, grace is seen as God's covenantal love and faithfulness towards his people. Why did he choose Abraham to be the father of, his, of the, the nation of Israel? Because that's who he chose. And if anything, we see in the scripture that he likes to choose the weak, the frail, the people that no one even knows exists. And he says, that's the people. They're not strong. They're not significant. They haven't made or invented anything of real importance, but I'm going to love them. And when he looks at you, he says, I love you, not because what you do, but because of who you are and who I am. Grace can be seen as God's covenantal love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, Grace is not only God's favor towards us, but it is also God's enabling power. He enables us to follow and to do his will. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's the grace of God that enables us to look at Christ and to believe in him. Even though we deserve punishment for our sins. God enables us by his power, through his spirit, to believe and to do his will. And the result of grace is this next word, peace. Peace. Peace is harmony and the lack of hostility. We can think of peace as harmony and the lack of hostility. Because of our sins, we are at war with God. But because of God's love, his grace, and his enabling power for us to believe in him and to follow him, we are no longer at war with God, but we are in harmony and at peace with him. Romans 4 tells us this, Romans 5, that we are justified by grace, having peace with God, having peace with God. And so Paul opens this letter by reinforcing the fact that God, the God of creation and God of redemption, sent him to Ephesus, has called him to write this letter, and that the people there, regardless of their stumbling, their falling, their inconsistency, God sees them as saints. He sees them as faithful. Why? Because notice that last phrase at the end of the second uh, 
verse. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. That is the key phrase to this book. You are going to see over and over and over again. In Christ Jesus, in Christ, in Jesus, in him. And so because we are in him, he sees us as saints. Because we are in him, he sees us as faithful. Because we are in him, we have the grace of God. Because we are in him, we are at peace with God. And he bestows upon us the lavish, infinite, overflowing love that he has for Jesus, he now pours upon you. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And as we sit here this morning, everything we need, we have in Christ Jesus. That's why we can say with the psalmist, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. The failures, the anger, feeling betrayed, people leaving, people going, it does not matter. Everything we need is in Christ Jesus. And this epistle will teach us that. Why? Because this is the day that the Lord has made. And regardless of the pressure, the culture, the circumstances, my failure, other people's failure, inconsistencies in me, inconsistencies in you, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. As long as Jesus is on the throne, as long as the Father is sitting next to him, as long as the Holy Spirit exists, there is always hope because of Christ. There was always peace and grace you and the word of God is alive and real let us pray father we come to you with empty hands and open arms calling upon your name help us to receive and to know and live out the grace and peace of God, which passes our human understanding. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.